Bone Knowing, a true story of coming to life in the face of impending loss. Chapter 7, Joy and Pain Coin. Spring 1994 through Fall 1995. Dwindling finances and pregnancy don't mix. I am pushed to push Tom beyond the band-aid protecting the festering wound of the past, the culprit behind his resistance to the dental lab work. When we met, polka dot bow ties and press shirts were all I saw. In reality, he was struggling to hold on to the scrap of his professional identity with a telecommunications job after losing his business. We both took part in the illusion. Tom being a master of feigning confidence and me wanting only to see someone sure of himself. It's not just us anymore, though. This fact must be sinking in for Tom, too, as I noticed the Sunday paper beside his computer folded open to the classifieds. A lab job is circled. I say nothing, tiptoeing around progress for fear of blowing it. It's been over a week of superficial niceties since I dropped the ball in his court, and it looks like he's at least considering picking it up. On Wednesday, we take our evening walk along the American River and do our usual gathering of fruit and pondering of names. Between blackberry picking and fig plucking, we hold hands and watch pink light glow off the huge slabs of granite that shuttle the water from Folsom Lake to Lake Natoma. God, this river is beautiful, Tom says. He pauses, curling his index finger around his chin the way he does just before an epiphany hits. What is it? I ask. I could work for a girl, mm. but I'm sure it's a boy. What do you think of River? River Mariano, he asks. Button, it's gorgeous. I love it. I press the back of his hand to my lips. I'm easy. Any investment from him has me flying high. This moment is better than any pregnancy fantasies I've imagined to date. I wish I could make the feeling last, but so far life has taught me repeatedly that it's just not possible. The coin will eventually flip back to some struggle I could do without, making this joy all the sweeter. At dinner, we toast with sparkling cider to the mission accomplished in the baby department. Tom lifts his glass a second time. And here's to the dental lab job I just landed. What? Tell me, I exclaim. He gives me the blow-by-blow -blow of how he's gone about picking up part-time work in a small lab run by a couple in the El Dorado Hills. He's their dream employee, overqualified, but humble, and an interesting third wheel to spice up the long days hovering over dental crowns. From what I can tell, it's mutual. Tom gets a steady income, a wife off his back, people to chat with, and a chance to air out his old wound, giving it a chance to heal. Over the next month, Tom settles into a work routine. The familiar territory of lab work has brought him back in time, like a deja vu reviving stories from his other life, the one before me. Memories string out, bringing others to the surface. Each one gets soaked up readily, filling in the missing pieces of the man I want to know. I listen intently. Yes, he made mistakes that resulted in losing the lab. Out of that mistake came one of his greatest regrets, the joy of working with his hands creating tiny abstract sculptures that would serve as teeth in the mouth of loved ones and strangers fascinated him. He immortalized himself in many a mouth, including his sister's full smile, restored after her mule bucked her off face first into a boulder. 
Jessica has a molar with a rose inscribed onto it, a forever reminder of her dad. It all began when a high school football accident claimed Tom's full front grill. When he tells me this, it feels like a big secret. I can't believe I fell for a fake smile back in Ed's front yard five years ago. Quickly, though, he redeems himself with the explanation of the picture-perfect smile that replaced the subtle character of his slightly overlapping front tooth and extra fangy bicuspids, being what drew him to the field, not for the perfection, but to make his trademark the craft of keeping character. Now that's my man. Really, it was the ideal field for someone with impeccable craftsmanship, a flair for style, and a fascination with the miniature. The side benefit was the ticket out of the ag town of Hollister. Years of hungering for a bigger world were fed when he had indulged himself in the city life of San Francisco. Everything had captured his attention, venturing into neighborhoods in search of new places and people, learning how to make teeth, playing guitar in small bands, and especially being in the company of women. Louise was a nursing student he was introduced to by his brother's girlfriend at a party. He found in her a freedom to explore all that he had been raised to be ashamed of. Her mother had died soon after they met, and they easily became each other's home. With school, the wedding, boot camp, and a close call with the draft cleared, they headed south. Eventually they settled on the Monterey Peninsula in a modern 70s style glass house that looked into a forest of tangled coastal oaks. They raised their two daughters, a dog, a pony, and some chickens on a rural cul-de-sac, just a few miles from the lab that Tom opened and the hospital where Louise worked as a nurse. The racquetball courts were only five minutes away, and Tom could pop over regularly for a pickup game and see many of the same faces at the monthly J.C.'s meeting, where he was the residing president. Though I've heard bits and pieces from this part of his life before, this telling is not for the story. It's for his healing. As he follows threads back in time into the full fabric they were part of, I begin to understand just how devastating the loss of this picturesque life was once the house of cards began to collapse, one undermining at a time. White lies, he tells me. Honestly, he laughs at himself. I thought they were in everybody's best interest. It started when he couldn't pay the quarterly taxes on his business. Keeping it to himself, he thought he could catch up with the next big order. It seemed like the best plan, especially since Louise had been battling the blues for over a year. Neither of them knew what was wrong. At the time, his best guess was early menopause. In retrospect, he votes it was a midlife crisis. Either way, he didn't want to add to the problem with financial stress. After all, they had a big bash planned for their 20th wedding anniversary, and he wanted everything to be perfect, indicative of the two decades they shared already. Even before the big party, the bottom had begun to drop out, and his lies had grown exponentially along with the penalties. The pattern he describes reminds me of how he handled his recurrent symptoms, keeping them to himself so as not to bother me with worry. Only now I'm worried all the more. Anyway, he says, the lab began sinking, and the only way to save it was to fire a couple employees. You've got to understand, Jen, they were like family. I felt so responsible for them. He frowns, describing how he'd go to work each day, resolved to drop the bomb, but he couldn't bring himself to say the words. On days he was overwhelmed, he'd shove his mail into the desk drawer to save for a day when he could deal with it. 
The problem was a speeding ticket and a fine for having his dog running free in their rural neighborhood were among the unopened envelopes. Unpaid fines and missed court dates equated to a warrant for his arrest. That envelope came on a day when he was up for opening the mail. I stop him there. Does this mean you still have a warrant, as in you get stopped now you go to jail? I guess it could go that way, he says, looking at the floor. It's all I can do not to jump down his throat on this one with a baby coming and all. I've been trying to clean it up on my visits down to the peninsula. I've got the dog one cleared. What a complete pain in the ass, I tell you. Shouldn't have been a ticket in the first place. Laddie was only doing what nature intended. Again, I'm shocked with this other life he has going on unbeknownst to me until now. I don't want to give him any reason to keep secret, so I keep my mouth closed and ears open. It's good therapist practice anyway. He goes on. The irony is that the lies began over money, but over the course of a few years they bled into other areas, killing the marriage I had been faithful to for twenty years. By the time the lab went belly up, all those well-meaning little lies weren't looking so innocent. I think Louise felt like she had been had and started a life of her own secrets, he says, pausing as if to absorb the realization. Strange. At first we got closer. A couple secrets were exposed, and I think it made us both realize there was more to the other than we knew. Kind of a spark thing. But then it felt almost like we started to compete with secrets, and it tore apart what we had. Like every marriage, I suppose, partners want out at times. But never in my wildest imagination would I have guessed Lo and I would end in divorce. Over the course of a couple years, things just spiraled out of control. His index finger wraps around his chin while unconsciously he kneads the flesh underneath with his thumb. His eyes shift as if he's reading some script off his own forehead. Finally, as if he's found the common denominator, he reels himself from the past and looks at me. Trust. We couldn't rewind and get it back. He takes both of my hands in his. You know, Jen, Lo and I had a good thing for a long time. Yeah, I know you did. It's important to me that you know I take marriage seriously, he says, contorting his forehead into a rare furrow. I'm glad you do because I don't want any stupid little lies blowing this, I say. I've learned the hard way. I hope so. The cancer was the ultimate bottom dropping out, and I can't help but think sometimes it started when the lies did and grew along with them. His hands move back into his chin, indicating a new stream is coming up. Pinocchio syndrome, he says and smiles. When it hit me, all my focus shifted to saving myself. That meant getting on with a new life free of lies and all the emotional binds they cause. The furrow returns. If my life was going to be cut short by any unknown measure, I didn't want to waste time ruminating on the pain of the past. But it's catching up with me, and the lies have slipped back in too. They're so small and automatic, I can barely tell when I make one. I'm trying, that's all I can give you. It's enough, I say, squeezing the hand that still holds mine. When he's dishonest, any marks on the slate get wiped clean with me. As the days get longer, Tom rises up with them, either heading off to work or digging a garden plot out on his days off. Baseball season is underway, and I walk to the fields in late afternoon to see my blue behind the plate, totally enthralled by being in the game. He shines. Something is different, no band-aid masking his full self. 
Early on Saturday, I'm combing the neighborhood yard sales for baby finds when I come across this ugly brown crib. I'm into the challenge of transformation these days, and the price tag will let me brag that I've set up the cutest nursery for under 50 bucks, loaded onto the front porch. All morning I paint while he works the crabgrass into a garden. Both of us lose track of time, caught up in our respective nesting instincts. It's three o'clock before we break for lunch. Tom makes roasted eggplant sandwiches and brings them out. He sits back in the hammock chair and smiles. His face is lit with victory and beads of sweat gather at the end of his nose. He lets them linger and fall where they will, taking pride in his own hard work. Gardens planted, he says with his hands linked behind his head and his legs spread in that manly kind of way. I put down my paintbrush. Really? You transformed that dead patch of grass already? Yep. Chili peppers, arugula, cukes, mint, and summer squash. He hands me a glass of homemade lemonade. Wow, what a makeover you have there. Looks great, butterfly. Gotta love the rainbow theme, he says, raising his glass. Yep, here's to a non-gender stereotype nursery, I say, toasting to him. Hey, let me come see your garden. I extend a free hand and he hauls me up. A protruding belly keeps me from the quick, agile movements I'm accustomed to. Tom gives me a tour of his future expectations. When the first round of lettuce passes, I'll plant pumpkins. They'll be ready for Halloween and the baby. Wait right there. I want to capture this. I waddle in to get my camera. Tom stands tall for the picture, a shovel in one hand, a bucket of weeds in the other, and a stain of dirt across his forehead just one shade darker than his skin. His yellow t-shirt reads peace in 20 different languages. In the background are lines of tiny green plants among freshly overturned soil. The moment emanates hope. Click. I capture it for reference down the line, in case there are days when hope is sparse. The summer is hot and Tom's garden thrives. There's enough lettuce for salads every night. Not a leaf goes wasted. By the time it shoots to seed, we're ready for something else. Tom plants the pumpkin patch and hooks up with the programmer to help manifest the software he's designed for dental labs. Both are signs of a sure future. On weekends, I continue to score almost new baby clothes as an early bird at garage sales in the fancy housing developments just outside the historic district. During the week, I make it through the workday by napping for the entire lunch hour under a tree at the neighboring park and spending breaks talking baby to my co-worker Lilia. She's early on in her pregnancy. It is so nice to be able to talk about morning sickness in retrospect. Even at the college pool where I swim two days a week before evening classes, I'm literally over the hump of suspicious glances across my growing tan belly and onto the official pregnancy turf, where the regulars ask when I'm due. At home, Tom and I are on the same page. Every conversation ends up on baby, and yet we are vigilant not to miss what is before it changes. We take all opportunities to be a couple before we are a family. Monday evening walks along the river often lead us into the water, adrift on inner tubes, our puppy swimming circles around us. Wednesdays are dollar movie nights at the Birdcage Cinema, and we go regardless of the show, just because we can. Friday is island night at the local Sheraton, where a reggae band plays poolside, and we get our entire dinner compliments of their Caribbean happy hour spread. Lately, the crowd has mobbed around the bar to watch the ongoing O.J. Simpson fiasco, leaving the pool area vacant to the few of us immune to vicarious drama.
We order no alcohol beers, put on our bathing suit, and dance around the water's edge until we're too hot to stand it, and then jump in. Tom carries me around in the shallow end, my tightly stretched belly rising like a sand dune out of the water. I rest into his arms, building a reserve of holding before I become the holder. Often, in my final trimester, and usually commuting to work with a cup of tea in hand, windows roll down and Paul Simon's Rhythm of the Saints crank to maximum volume, I cry joy. The nectar of my life overwhelms me at times. There is something about birth with the awareness of death that is so beautiful I can't contain it. Both my body and my heart brim over. For moments at a time, I find myself in the place just between the sides of joy and pain, where the two become indiscernible. As the birth gets closer, these moments stretch out. I'm feeling completely honed into this little person about to enter our world from whence it comes. At week 38, I can hear this baby and my mama instincts loud and clear. They tell me to make some changes before I leave to the hospital. Between contractions while waiting for Tom, I disassemble the crib and move it from the nursery to our tiny bedroom, leaving only a narrow path of floor space. The next instruction is to set a round of mouse traps guilt-free. Though we've been cohabitating quite nicely, meaning the mice crowd behind the refrigerator when I enter the kitchen and they don't touch the fruit, unlike those rude rats from the last place, babies and mice don't mix and our house is deemed for humans only. Even our trial baby has to relocate to her doghouse. By the time Tom picks me up, my clothes are damp with sweat despite the cold cloud cover outside. I'm ready. At the hospital, the first storm of the season begins as sheets of water pelt the windows with irregular gusts propelling them. Inside the warmly lit room, I fall into Tom again and again, surrendering to the excruciating pain. Just like on the rope, when I need to peel off, he has me. It's safe to go inside myself and access all resources. Hours of mustard-yellow pain pass through me until a new sensation comes, red-hot fire. Veins spring out of unexpected places as I bear down hard, joining the squeezing wave of age-old body knowledge. Fire! I key-eye on a thorough exhale harder than I ever had in my judo career. With Joyce holding up one knee, Amy holding the other, and Tom ready to catch, our baby burns its way through the last boundary and slides into the world. The coin flips, and with it goes the pain. Ecstatic joy fills me as I feel the mass of steaming, slippery baby on my chest and meet those piercing black eyes for the very first time. Welcome, baby. I say in utter awe. We've got ourselves a little river, Tom announces, hardly able to contain his glee. He snips the umbilical cord and wraps us both in warm blankets. I'd forgotten to care about gender, but I'm glad inside, knowing what it means to Tom to leave no stone unturned. He has raised daughters. A son is an experience unlived. His piqued curiosity is insurance that he'll invest himself fully into parenting, no matter how long he'll be around to do it. So I can have it all, he says, reaching for my hand later that night as we drop off to sleep together in our side-by-side -side hospital beds. River is between us latched onto my breast, elevating their status from sex toys to life sustainers. Ditto, I think. Got the man and the baby. 
Life is good. Elation permeates the room, and my love for our child is met and matched by Tom's. It's all that I've hoped for. I send a hearty thanks out into the ether. We are up at 6 a.m. waiting to decline all the needle sticks and eye drops so we can simply leave and bring our joy boy home to meet his family members who have come to welcome him in. It's hard to believe this tiny baby with his brown hair looking like he just came from the barbers has been out breathing air for less than eight hours by the time we are home with him. He feels natural in my arms and I can barely stop staring at him long enough to share him with others. Joyce and Amy have baked eggplant parmesan and apple crisp for lunch, and Eliza has made the drive up to meet her new baby brother. The aromas, coupled with the presence of loving company, warm our home against the cold rain outside. By evening, everyone goes their separate ways, leaving me to settle into mothering. I can't wait just to stare at our son without interruption and smell the creases of his neck. Awkwardly, I rig up the baby bathtub on the dining room table in preparation for River's first bath. Tom goes out for groceries and to buy me a few good nursing shirts, as the implications of breastfeeding every hour on the hour, no matter where I am, have already hit home. I'm reveling in our miracle when Tom returns. Button, come, come! Our little River just loves the water. No surprise there, huh? Button, lovely, look! Hurry, hurry, look! He's all wide-eyed. You won't believe how alert he is. I smell him even before my eyes met his red, spacey ones. Tom has checked out, just as his son has checked in. Shit! Mama Bear rage sets in. What are you doing? You just went out to get stoned, didn't you? How long has that been going on? I shoot bullets at him, giving him no time to lie in response. I can't believe you! We've got this little miracle here and you're escaping reality? This little guy right here is the greatest high ever and you're missing it just one day out. What's wrong with this reality? Aren't we enough? I begin crying and bundle River up, as if to protect him from taking any of this personally, because I surely can't. Tom brushes past me and puts the groceries away in silence, offering no explanations. The coin flips and with it goes the fleeting joy of our cozy home. The rest of the evening, I cuddle River in bed and tell him he is the best thing that has ever happened to me, until we both doze off into sleep. I wouldn't have believed that my entire orientation would shift to baby growing, but it has. Everything else is second to that, including Tom. Mother Nature has a way of protecting new life, and her medicine is strong. I'm drunk on it, entangled in a string of hurts and anger. It's taking me days of unraveling to feel even a pinch of compassion for Tom in his plight to mask the pain of eventually leaving his son. The rain breaks on Saturday morning and we go out for our first walk as a family. River nestles into the sling of soft cloth I wear across my chest. I pull the blankets away from his nose, checking continuously to make sure I'm not smothering him in the new contraption. He begins to cry. What is it, baby boy? I coo to him. His cry turns into a shriek. What? Sweetie, what is it? I look up at Tom and clear the new mom checklist. He can breathe. He's not wet. And I just fed and burped him before we left. You want me to take him? Tom offers. No, it's okay. I've got him. River continues bellowing. My lips tremble and I turn to walk down the trail. He's only got me and I can't help him, I think. Let me take him, Jen. Tom insists from behind me. I stop, 
the quiver tugging the corners of my mouth down. Why is he crying? I've done everything I know. Oh, my Jessica used to cry like this. We tried everything under the sun and finally discovered the car. We'd drive around the neighborhood for hours on end trying to settle her down, he consoles. Yeah, well, you weren't leaving Jessica, were you? I throw him a shot from left field, shrapnel left from the blowout just a few nights before. Little does he know that I haven't been able to shake the anticipation of this precious child's eventual abandonment since he gave me that sneak preview with the pot-smoking homecoming. I just didn't know it then, and now it's a possibility. He catches the shot in midair with a straightforward acknowledgement of his potential abandonment by death. So what, you bail with your heart, just in case? I yell over River's howls. He knows I'm talking about his pot checkout. He puts his hand up, dismissing my accusation, and walks past me. You bastard. The dance is looking all too familiar. He turns and looks me square on, as if he hears my thoughts. I want this so badly you can't even know. Why do you think I was so hesitant to have children at this point in the game? It wasn't because I don't love fathering and all that comes with it. Jesus, Jen. It was because it's unfair. Unfair to him, unfair to you, unfair to me. You've got the luxury of knowing you'll be here for him. I don't. Mama Bear Ammo is at the tip of my tongue, ready to defend, until I see his eyes well up. This fucking cancer, he says, his nostrils flare out, catching a tear that has spilled over his lower lid. I move in close and put my hand on the side of his face. Our heads drop to center unison, propped up on each other's foreheads. Baby River is wedged between us. All three of us are crying now. In our huddle, we strategize against our common enemy. The game plan is to love anyway. Illness can threaten to take away many things, but not the capacity to love. Tom makes the choice. The crack in his heart is palpable, and so is the little opening it makes. We give a silent go team and break huddle. River stops crying, mission accomplished. I duck awkwardly out of the sling and offer it to Tom. He wants his daddy. Tom tenderly gathers River and his heap of blankets out of the sling and holds him at eye level. And his daddy wants him, he says, pressing River's tiny body against his chest, more than he will ever know. We walk into our future, committed to never take it for granted, regardless of which side the coin we are on. Just a week into being a new mom, resentment has already begun to quietly seat itself under my skin. It's not the baby, but education. Winter break is still a month away, and I have projects to turn in and classes to show up for, in order to pass, in order to graduate sooner, in order to get a career up and rolling, in order to keep our family afloat, if and when Tom gets sicker. Each time I pack River snugly into his carrier, stuff thick breast pads into my bra, load up a backpack with diapers and textbooks, and head to class, I must remind myself of how this very move is connected to caring for our child. I sit through statistics and methodology every week, trying not to gaze at the beloved baby sleeping at the car seat at my feet, but my brain is jelly for anything else. It's all I can do to ask a question every class to prove I'm still on board. Inevitably, River whimpers and my breasts tingle heavily, and a surge of milk floods the pads, making dark blue bullseyes on my shirt. 
As usual, my body knows that what we both need. I fight it tooth and nail in the name of a bigger picture of survival. Winter break finally arrives, providing respite, or rather a tease of what it's like to be an at-home mother. Nothing to date has been as consistently challenging as switching gears out of mother mode and into teacher mode at work or student mode at school. Lori, the boss I've made a terrible habit of complaining about to co-workers, takes mercy on me and tweaks my job description, putting me on chart duty and out of the classroom so River can come to work with me while he's still an infant. No more Lori dissing for me. By February, River is wide awake and needs more attention than a mama cooing to him while typing out reports. When I tell Lori I need to switch to part-time, she offers a job share set up with Tom and me that will maintain our medical benefits. She had met Tom at a work party and, like so many people, took an instant liking to him and invited him to sub for other teachers according to his availability. Back then, I had rolled my eyes and told my co-worker it was because he was eye candy for her. Now I'm feeling guilty for undermining her generosity. She's officially a saint, and I tell her so repeatedly. Tom comes on board two days a week and works at the lab two days a week, leaving two seven-hour windows a week for River to be in daycare. Not bad. See, it all works out, he tells me, for the thousand-something time in our six years together. One day I hope to have the vision of retrospect like that. On the days Tom or the babysitter have River, I must supply the milk. Dairy cow is added to my many roles. The generous breaks at work I used to spend keeping my life as an artist alive are now spent pumping milk. Retreats into the dark room produce baggies of milk instead of developed negatives. The cow routine goes like this. After locking myself into the dark room, I methodically lay out a towel, bottles, and bags on the counter opposite the chemical trays. Then I rig up the mess of tubes that connects the pump to the cups, assemble the bladder that keeps the milk from flushing back into the motor, screw it to the bottles and the bottles to the cups, row up my shirt and tuck it under my chin, unlatch the flaps of my nursing bra, center the suction cups over each nipple, and hit the power switch on the shoebox size pump. The machine pulls each breast rhythmically through the cone into a column of a cup, contorting them into long cow teats as the milk shoots against the tiny rubber bladder and drains into the bottle. Closing my eyes, I picture myself at home, rocking and nursing river, and pray no one blows the flow by knocking on the door. Once in a while, one of the autistic students, Sean, talks incessantly through the wall at me, obsessing on the intrigue of the mystery machine I pack in and out of the classroom. If I'm lucky and uninterrupted, I'll get about three ounces before the break is up. That's just enough to keep up with River's feeding cycles. Before the next bell rings, I've got my breast tucked back in for respite, the paraphernalia cleaned and packed up, and a baggie of mama's milk ready to stash in the lounge fridge next to my co-workers' Diet Cokes and Starbuck mochas. Nothing short of maximum efficiency is what's required to pull off the work, school, and mama thing. Over the winter and into the spring, our son grows into his own little person. Like a magnet, my attention keeps coming back to him, no matter how interesting I thought the subject of my thesis was, or how invested I'd been in the study and practice of art as a healing modality. In bed at night, Tom shares his delight in every minuscule advance of River's development I missed while I was at evening classes. You should have seen our little man in the Johnny Jumper. Man, oh man, is he funny! 
He just figured out how to bounce today, and he's already a little Mexican jumping bean. He gets all worked up yelping and drooling and pounding his little fist on the tray each time he springs up. Tom says, laughing. Tell me more, I say, patting Tom's chest in the dark. Like most parents, I don't want to miss a moment of the miracle of a child growing at the most rapid pace in a life outside the womb. At the same time, I'm comforted Tom is taking in every drop I'm missing while he can. Over the summer, I sign up for classes and plug away at my thesis in order to graduate by December. Fantasies of what it'll be like once I finish this marathon education began dancing around my head during lectures. In them, I imagine being home with my toddler, playing pat-a-cake, finger-painting, taking walks to the park, and even getting back to my art while he's down for naps. Working an internship doesn't factor into the fantasy, nor does Tom getting sicker. It's been easy to bypass the latter, as there haven't been any indicators that the cancer's progressing. Tom jumps to his feet behind the plate at the ball field. Good. He comes home from his weekly cancer support groups at Sutter with enthusiastic stories of alignment with the doctor who facilitates the group. Great. Back in June, we celebrated Tom's 50th, and he invited the doc along with some friends and family from all over. Tom and a dozen or so others rafted down the American River. Our son crawled among the sour grass and Kisma ran circles around him, while I set up a massive tent in the backyard for overnight guests. Late into the afternoon, Tom returned brown from a day in the sun and ready to celebrate. We all ate dinner on the back lawn, toasting to Tom's milestone, and convinced we'd someday be celebrating his 60th in similar form. It's hard to believe it's been a whole year since this precious son of ours came into the world. River is cute beyond cute, and I don't think it's because I'm partial. He's sinewy, like a little muscle man, and has his daddy's olive skin, almond-shaped eyes, and hefty bottom lip that reminds me of Kris Kringle from the Christmas special that was on when I was a kid. At the back of his head is a bald spot, worn through since the early days of too much sitting in car seats at Mama's feet while she worked. It's growing in with the same curly blonde hair that cradles his face. His eyes range from the spectrum of gray to brown depending on the day, and his smile reveals six bright chiclet teeth, four on top, two on bottom. Like Tom, and Mom would say like me too, he's curious about everything. A pine cone or a washcloth can be made into an elaborate play experience, entertaining him for long stretches of time. In early November, we hold a party in the backyard to celebrate his first birthday with a mix of friends and family from multiple circles. I look across the lawn at Tom, sitting in a beach chair, running a hand through his thinning brown hair and offering River a sip of his alcohol-free beer. River wobbles upright, hanging onto his daddy's leg, and grabs for the bottle with his free hand. Tom laughs and talks on with other adults who sit in a circle watching the babies crawl around in the grass. His eyes never leave River. I walk over and squat behind his chair and whisper into his ear, We've done good, huh? He reaches for my hand and presses it to his heart. Yeah, it's been a good year, Butterfly. We are so lucky. His pulse is strong under my palm. Yes, so lucky, I think. We watch our son with button-popping pride and joy as he falls onto all fours, scrambles to the next chair, and pulls himself up for a bottle scan. Click. Francisco takes our picture. You two look love-struck, he teases, and Tom and I look at each other knowingly. 
absolutely. Frankie, Francisco, as he's insisted on being called since his move out west, was like a little brother to me in art school, annoying and yet lovable. Occasionally we still banter like siblings and get caught up in rivalry around being artists. He's making a living as a graphic designer in San Francisco and drops subtle innuendos about how I've sold out going back to school for art therapy, as if it isn't really art. Actually, it's a sore spot for me, and I can't tell how much of it is him teasing and how much is it me ripe for such interpretations. It's not that I wish it any different. I simply miss the time to fully indulge in creativity. Right now, it's Frankie behind the camera. I remind myself that I gave up photography because, ironically, it kept me one step removed from the moment. When it's time for the cake, Tom encourages River to do what he wasn't allowed to do as a child. Go ahead, little man. Put your hands in. That's it. Tastes good, huh? Oh, I guess it makes good hair mousse, too. Tom opens his mouth, and River feeds him whipped cream and squeals when Tom pretends to eat his tiny little fingers. Both of them have white beards of cream. Click. Another shot from Frankie. He's reading the moments like I would have, leaving me free to be directly in them. As the sun gets lower, the babies get crankier, ours included. Guests start to leave, and I feel a growing angst. What I want to be is a normal family, clean up, bathe river, and fall asleep nursing him, with Tom in bed beside us. But there is schoolwork to be done, a thesis project to complete before I can be free of it. Again, the coin flips. I'm sucked out of the sweet joy of our child's first birthday and into educational obligations that had once held my enthusiasm. I'm limping through the home stretch of six weeks until graduation. One minute I'm full of regret that I've overridden what I wanted most in favor of a future survival plan. The next minute I'm confident that I'm taking care of my family the best way possible. So here I sit, in front of the blue screen, wanting to blame the man I felt immensely grateful to just a few hours before. I'm going to bed, Tom announces and pecks the top of my head. It was a great party, Jen. Mm-hmm. The sweetness from earlier in the day is out of reach. When he leaves the room, I let the tears trickle out. Why don't you support us more so I don't have to crank out a career so fast? Why are you going to sleep when I'm the one who's exhausted? Why am I wasting my fucking time on this thesis when you don't even care? I stop myself after a good solid five minutes of getting nowhere in the blame game. All I really want is for Tom to catch my fall like he promised way back when. Only he doesn't know I'm slipping. Back to the screen and the stack of books. Minutes turn into hours and everything I write strays off topic. I can't do this. I'm reminded of the ultimate fatigue I've felt a hundred feet off the ground when down climbing wasn't an option. And I remember the mantra that renewed me many a time. Just go with what's in front of you and trust the next move. I sit up straight and try to remember why I'm writing. Graduation is the carrot that lures me by notching me a step closer to the secure future and the illusion that I'll be free to mother. Somehow I've forgotten that the point of the education was a career. The subject of the thesis is where my words fall flat. I'm deflated by the unappreciated effort of fighting my husband's enemy for him and somehow feeling like I'm missing the point. Being a queen of efficiency, I choose a subject that would support our real-world experience. Art Psychotherapy Support Groups for Cancer Patients was the title. 
Early on, every article or book I read resonated with the mind-body connection and the synergistic nature of group support I experienced vicariously through Tom. Our discussions over dinner were lively with hope, as our passions overlapped, his of alternative medicine and the power of support groups, and mine of using art for healing. Psychoneuroimmunology was a budding field, and I quickly realized the implications for the creative process on the immune system. The art interventions I designed for the group had slowly moved from emotional support to healing, as in cure. Secretly, I had been out to save Tom. But priorities have changed. Getting through this illness wherever it goes, without finding ourselves out on the street with a baby in tow, has become number one. It means I must hang my hope on a stronger hook for all of us. Emotional and spiritual healing for everyone involved becomes my new hook. Pecking away at the keys, I focus on the carrot instead of a rescue mission. Cure, as a concept, is released again. Renegotiations with God follow. Got it. Quality time, you decide how much. And hey, you think you could maybe keep a roof over our heads? This has been read to you by the author, Jennifer Allen. Copyright 2009.